beta, 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 alanine, beta alanine is in the house. When I first got to on it, this was one of the first supplements I wanted to bring on board because we didn't have it and it fucking works. Uh, we have a sports performance line now through our partnership with Exos, which means we get to sell some pretty basic regular products like creatine and glutamine. And you're probably thinking, well, everyone and their mom sells that shit. Why should I buy from you guys? But check this out. We invented, well, we didn't invent. We're using a awesome version of beta alanine that's time release. So that means for a lot of people, you're not going to experience the tingling sensation that most people associate with beta alanine as a negative side effect. But guess what, bitch? That shit lets you know it's working and it doesn't feel that bad. So long story short, whether you feel tingles or not, bottom line is we think we've developed a product that not only works, it's one of the most science-backed products ever created in sports performance, probably only second to creatine. Taken together, there's science that shows they work wonders, and they're an excellent addition to any pre-workout that we have. Make sure you check out beta alanine at onit.com slash podcast for another 10% off. Kurt motherfucking Shrout. Kurt Shrout. Oh, I'm sorry if uh, the motherfucking uh, offended anybody. I'm trying to do a better job on cursing since apparently I I, uh, I I I get a little worked up, like I'm in the locker room during some podcasts. Not all of them, and I am being more mindful of that. So I just wanted to state that I like speaking the way I normally speak to people, but there's a time and a place for that. So I will be trying to curtail that a little bit. Now back to Kurt Shrout. Kurt Shrout is a longtime friend, and um. Just a fucking awesome dude, like really awesome. He was a Marine and he got into jujitsu and all sorts of cool stuff. He had done Muay Thai growing up, but really he's, he's an ace in jujitsu. And even though he's 10 years older than me, and I'll, I'll joke and often say that he's 20 or 30, he's very good. He can beat me and he weighs about 30 pounds less. I mean, he's, he's and I'm not saying that as his qualifier. He took second, he got silver at Master Worlds and only lost on an advantage. I mean, just a highly talented dude, but we don't talk much about jujitsu. I try to fit it in at the end. This is mostly about life. This is about a lot of cool shit. On this podcast, we talk about politics for the very first time. We talk about uh, Jordan Peterson, who was a very polarizing character. And I, and I try to see, as I do with everybody, if I disagree with someone, surely there's something I can agree with them on right? So I search for those things. Uh, and if I agree with somebody and think they're great, let me find something I disagree with them because nobody should be held up to master status. Nobody uh, is the second coming and I'm not looking for that in other people. So it helps me to see the humanness in all people if I can find that common ground. Because we all have things we're, we're happy about, our light, and we all have things that we're not so happy about, our shadows. But the more we expose those to ourselves and to others, the easier it is to grasp that shit. Now, I've gotten quite airy-fairy, and believe me when I tell you this, this podcast is not that. Kurt Shrout is uh, an incredible human, and I was very happy to finally have him out here. We had him out for the Honored Invitational because he's a huge jiu-jitsu fan, as am I, and uh, we had a blast. It was great hanging with him, and I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did. All right, so I'm joined by the sweater. <laughs> Explain the sweater. <laughs> I guess in the uh, in the radio industry, like the uh, back in the day, the the woman that would be in the radio studio studio for like the morning drive time, they're referred to as the sweater. Why does she have to be a woman, Kurt? I don't know. I don't, I don't assign these roles or come up with any of this stuff. I didn't even 
come up with a moniker. Okay, I love it. All right, so you're going to be the sweater today. I'm going to talk for 90% of this, and you're just going to chime in with little tag words here and there. I'm pretty sure that'll end up being how it goes. All right, so one of the things here was, I'm joined by Kurt Shrout, as you know, since you clicked on this podcast, who's been a longtime friend. We'll unpack all that. You told me before that you only wanted to come on the show as an intellectual and not as a friend of of Kyle Kings. You didn't want to just come on the podcast because you're my friend. And that's the only reason you're here. So I want to be clear. The only reason you're on today's show is because you're my friend. That's it, buddy. All right. Let's get that out of the way. I'm getting hot over here. Yeah. Rip my sweater off. Kurt, you are one of the most fascinating dudes I've ever met. And I mean that with 100% sincerity, even though I'm going to bust your balls today. Um, we met on a tour for the troops mm-hmm. in 2010 with, uh, God, was that only 2010? Uh-huh. Wow. Chris Lieben, uh, Ed Herman, Mike Swick, Mike Swick, Greg Thompson. That's right. Yeah. Greg Thompson. Yeah. That was a good tour. That was not a good tour. That was not a good tour at all. That was the very first tour I'd ever done. So, uh, a long time ago I was, I was in the Marine Corps. We'll unpack all that. Come on. Well, I like to do this like a Tarantino movie. Where okay, I, back I cut, and forth. Start and... with the end, then we go back to fill in the middle, and then we actually finish with the real ending. Right. So can we do the origin story of how we met? Yes. On the tour for the troops? All right. And then we'll get to you being a Marine. Well, I guess it's important that they know you're a former Marine, not an ex-Marine, a former Marine. Former Marine, yeah. And that's relevant can, to the that's story. That's why you do the tours. That's the why troops. I started setting up the tours for the troops. So I became very good friends with Nate Quarry. Um, who was on the original season of The Ultimate Fighter, along with Mike Swick. And um, so I found myself in a position where I could give back to the military that I had gotten so much from, especially knowing a a high-level professional athlete. So I started setting up tours of uh, UFC fighters and BJJ experts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu experts, to go and visit the troop station overseas, run seminars with them, uh, autograph sessions with with the athletes, and uh, and so the very first tour I ever did, it was Mike Swick, you, Chris Levin, Ed Herman, uh, Greg Thompson, and we went to Europe and the Middle East. Uh, and our Europe stay got extended because um, volcano volcano in Iceland Everyone was grounded, right? And so. Um, yeah, and so it was a nightmare. Well, we had a tour bus. We had a tour that, bus. That fucking everyone and their mom had been in. And right. our tour bus driver, Mike. Mike. Who I think is still working for the military, uh-huh. German guy. He, and the um, stories that he has. He had taken everyone from Toby Keith recently in that bus to the Rolling Fucking Stones. Right. Had been in that bus. Right. I mean, this was this was a $400,000 tour bus. This was not... Like you know, a rented school bus. It had it like showers. Rock stars. It had beds. It had couches. It had had everything. A DVD room in the back. Right, right, right. With yeah. couches that Lieben could hide beer in yeah. between the cushions with. No. Let's talk about that tour. Let's All talk right. about what made it difficult. So what made it? It was the very first tour I'd ever done. Uh, I didn't at the time quite know exactly how to set up boundaries and curfews and stuff like this with these. Athletes that overindulge, that <laughs> do not know how to quit, and so uh, and so for, and especially because part of the tour got canceled because of the volcano, there was a time period where I think fifty percent of the people on that tour were drunk for two days straight, you know, and so that was that was very difficult, uh, and I did not like that. 
<laughs> not one bit. <laughs> and, you know, so trying to organize everything was, you know, yeah, these strong I personalities. We went to, once the volcano went off, we decided, like, we kind of had to kill time. So it was like, well, we'll take you guys to the U.S. Embassy in Paris. Mm-hmm. And we were going to stop in uh, the Netherlands along the way. And mm-hmm. everyone's just chanting to go to... Uh, Cafe. fucking city. Yeah. Amsterdam. Amsterdam. And you were like, there's no way in hell we're going to Amsterdam and it's off route and I'm never letting you guys out in Amsterdam. So I was like, well, we at least got to hit a cafe. And, um, well, I don't want to say how we got there, but an address was given to us (laughs) (laughs) by someone who knew what was up. And we ended up finding this cafe and it was all cobblestone walkways. Super, just incredible, beautiful place. But there's not a lot of American tourists there. Right. It's, it's pretty remote. And the base we were on felt like, um, it felt like The Shining. Yeah. Like it was just it was fucking empty. empty. It was completely empty. I was half expecting kids to come through on a tricycle. Like right. it was fucking weird. Yeah. But um, we get out to the cafe and I love this story. Mike Swick had never smoked pot. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and you know, he's a bit of a worry wart. Right. And, and uh, a people pleaser. So he didn't want to make old Uncle Dana upset. And I was telling him, everybody's like, come on, Mike, we're all going to fucking... We're going to hit the volcano. We're going to a cafe. So we get in the cafe, and he's petrified. Somehow, word's going to get back to Dana that he's smoking weed, mm-hmm. which is like, you're in the fucking Netherlands. Who gives a right. shit, right? Well, we get in there, and we were pretty recognizable because Chris Lieben has red hair and is covered mm-hmm. in tattoos, and Ed Herman's covered in tattoos, and also he's a natural ginger. And I'm tall, and Swick's a recognizable guy. He's been mm-hmm. on TV a lot. So the guy recognizes us from behind the weed counter. He's like, ah, UFC, UFC. And Swick freaks the fuck out. And we all have to grab him and be like, dude, it's cool. It's totally cool. So they give us all the weed we want for free. There's volcanoes at every little coffee table. We grab a seat. They bring it out. We load it up. We start filling bags. And Swick's taking giant pulls. And he's like, I don't feel anything. I'm not getting anything. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not high. And I'm so like, So I'm sure you guys were responsible and said, Well, no, let it kick in. <laughs> is that is that what happened? That's not, exact, we, that's not exactly how it went down. We'll do it again, Mike. Yeah. I, I finally I was like, eh, maybe pump the brakes because I was fucking blasted. And uh we all we all go for a walk as we come out, and we're kind of wandering aimlessly through the streets. And Swick still claiming not to be high marches straight into a mcdonald's probably the only mcdonald's they have and orders half the fucking menu (laughs) is fully engulfed and i'm like i want to drink i want to see the town and we go to a bar and it's like the record stopped i'm sure we told you about Mm -hmm. this but the record stops we're looking around the only guy who looked like us was the the fucking security guard at the front door and he was like you guys aren't from around here are you no we were like shit no it's like no man i was like why is everyone so young and he goes, well, everyone that's your age, they're, they've already been to the bars. The legal drinking age here is, that's okay. You can cough. It won't mess up the audio for anybody listening in the car. Okay. Let's edit that out. No, we, we're not going to edit that out. And I'm going to make <laughs> sure of it. 100% unedited episode. And uh, he's like, so they're 16 years old here. That's the legal drinking age. He goes, I do a pretty good job of IDing, but a lot of people have fake IDs or their older siblings' IDs. So that means there's fucking 13 and 14-year-olds in this bar that we're at. And by the time they're in their late teens, they go to the cafes. And then by the time they're in their late 20s, 30s, they're just fucking grabbing wine and weed for the house. They're having friends over. They're not going out anymore. 
it was fucking awkward. It was like a Twilight Zone episode. And we tried dancing and then we ended up moving on. Great story. So we move on. Compelling. We get to the to the US embassy. And do you remember? Well, hold on. There's another part of this story. So um I didn't go out with you guys that night. Like I was tired. I was exhausted of you guys. Not of being in Europe, because that's awesome. That's a goal for everyone. So in about three o'clock in the morning, Swick knocks on my door back at the at the barracks and he's like, hey. We lost Ed Herman. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He's I somewhere in one of these three countries because we were. It was a border country that you mm-hmm. could have been in Germany, France, or um, uh, Netherlands. Netherlands. And and I was like, I, I I don't care. I really don't care anymore, Mike. I I don't care if we ever see Ed Herman again. And I just closed the door and went back to bed. And the look <laughs> on Swig's face was like. I can't believe you're not going to help. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I was mortified. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done. But you're, but in, in all fairness, like I, I love Ed Herman. He's he's phenomenal. And he's so. a great dude. Yeah. What was where were we at when we had the uh, the grape scene with me and you? Which airport was that? So that was in uh, not Kuwait. It was in UAE. And so that was we had finally got to the Middle East, and we were it was on a dry base where you could buy alcohol on base. You weren't supposed to take it out into town, although there were places, hotels out in town where you could get alcohol. Mm-hmm. And at the hotel that we were staying out, it's called Moving Picks. Um, Moving Picks. Moving right. Picks. And <clears throat> there ended up being a wedding reception in the uh, like ballroom there. And you and Herman got invited to it. That's right. So Herman and Kingsbury decided, hey, we're just going to stay up all night with this party and drink. And so by seven o'clock in the morning, because we had a flight and we were, the flight we were going to was Abu Dhabi. And uh, so we're downstairs. And so I'm, I'm a fruit person. I like fruits, veggies, protein, you know, I, I don't like bags of chips and stuff like that. So, and fruit in the Middle East is very expensive. And so I had a bag of grapes that I probably spent like 20 bucks on, you know, for, you know, half a pound kind of a thing. I love how you're building this. (laughs) (laughs) And this, by this point, we're 10 days into the tour. And uh, yeah. And so my frustration level was pretty high. You had a short fuse. just I had a a very short fuse. And uh, so we're all standing out waiting for the bus to take us, um, take us to the airport. And I'm standing there eating my grapes. And Kingsbury walks up, just drunk and stares at me. He's like, what, six, eight inches away? And I'm just eating my grapes, just just ignoring him. And then his big, massive hand just comes swinging down on top of the grapes, knocks him onto the ground, and then he just stomps on him and then turns (laughs) and looks at me. That was one of my favorite moments. Uh, That you don't even remember. You don't even remember. And so... I'm, I and I, I process. All right, so what are my options here? Well, all right, I could hit Kyle. Um, it'll completely change the dynamics of the next, you know, four <laughs> days of the tour. Uh, but come to find out, knowing Kyle, Kyle probably would have been like, "No, I deserved it. We're totally cool." Um, <laughs> and so That's I was processing, yeah. you know, what I should do here. And in that moment, Greg Thompson. And Mike Swip come running over and they both knew to quickly separate us. And Swip grabbed you. Uh, Greg grabbed me, walked me off. And the entire, 
Greg just goes, I know, I know, I know. Don't worry. I know. Like I didn't even have to explain. And, uh, but, um, and then as soon as we got to, uh, Abu Dhabi, you had to get plugged in to get rehydrated. Mm-hmm. So you went straight to the, one of the IV, give me all the B the vitamins. Medic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause you were so dehydrated. Who would have saw that coming? I don't know. Yeah. No one could foresee. Middle East. What was to happen? Drinking, not water. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was probably like 120, 125 degrees. It was hot while yeah. we were there. Without so so we, we that's that's where we meet. And then, you know, what's great about that is Sweet got me on that tour. Mm-hmm. While I was on that very first tour, um, who was the guy who got busted for pot? He fought. He was... Um, he got busted for having a grow operation. Anyways, he couldn't go on this next tour, which was with a different company, with Pro Sports MVP. Oh. So that opened up a slot for me. Swick was going to go. He was going to spend the night in Frankfurt, Germany, and then go right on this next tour. Oh, that's right, because you went back to back. Yep. And so I, I I got the, you know, via email, and Swick again with the invite, I got to go on this next tour, which is through Pro Sports MVP, which is how I met my wife right. later on. Not on that exact tour, but... uh. A year later, my wife-to-be, I would meet on a very tour for the troops. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because you were on that one with Tom Lawler mm-hmm. when you met Natasha, right? I don't know that uh, that might have been a different tour that Tom was on. The, the tour that I met Tosh was just me, Tosh, Amber Nicole Miller, and Mike Swick. Okay. Swick was on all these. He was okay. a regular out there. Yeah, surprisingly. Swick, Swick was great. He, with his cans of tuna fish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and no garlic. No There's garlic. no garlic. There's in no this garlic route. in this. Food, hey, you're gonna right? take us the quickest route to the uh, to the club, right? You're not gonna drive us all around. And I think this know, guy's fucking with us. And the He's taxi trying to make cab. A couple extra bucks. Yeah, he wants and a couple extra euros. Get out. Get out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's backtrack this. Okay. What made you want to go into the military growing up? So I was a I was an absolute buffoon in uh, elementary school, middle school, high school. Um, I didn't know how to be a student. I didn't know how to learn. I didn't know how to behave. You know, I was angry. And, but I also knew that college is essential part of life. You know, you're not, uh, very few people out there are going to be able to make it, have a successful, a financially successful life without incorporating college. Everybody in my family went to college, uh, you know, and so I didn't want to be left out. And so I- one percenter, Kurt. Well, so just like the shrouds, um, you know, I'm, every single one of my cousins uh, have degrees or advanced degrees. There are multiple PhDs on the shroud side of the family. So there's like 15 cousins, um, PhDs, there's lawyer, there's, I mean, they're just, they're just an impressive group of people. And if we're all in a room together and you line us up from dumbest to smartest, the dumbest person in the room is going to be my brother. Um, and then I'm next to him, right? <laughs> and really, it depends on what we're talking about. I might be the dumbest person in the room. So, And so they're just great motivators of don't be complacent. Um, this is in your genes. You can do this. You know, you're, you're, if you just work and you can accomplish your, your educational goals. So I knew I, I had to go to college, but did not have discipline. I didn't have... I didn't know how to behave as an adult. Uh, and so, and I also come from a military family. My grandfather uh, served in World War II. He was a bombardier, flew on multiple missions, flew on the Berlin airlift, shot down twice, 
you know, in the start off in the Army Air Corps and then the Air Force. Um, and so I was, you know, I need to follow in these footsteps. Uh, so I joined the Marine Corps, picked the Marine Corps over any other service because I thought it would look better on a resume, you know, and, and you would look better in a uniform. Um, you know, come to find out, it really doesn't matter all that much. What matters is, is that you did it, that you're a veteran, that you served. Um, and it, it's definitely a, a, a benefit. So I picked the Marine Corps because I was hoping to learn how to be an adult, you know, teach me to show up on time, you know, because I didn't know about punctuality. Uh, and, and it worked. Now, I was still an incredible idiot as a Marine. Uh, like if, thank God I had amazing superiors. Uh, otherwise, I mean, I got in trouble left and right. You know, even even what kind of stuff the, would get you in trouble when you're in the Marines. Oh God, this is how dumb I was when I was 19. Um, you know, so everybody knows about you know going AWOL. Well, they don't call that in the military. It's UA, unauthorized absence. And so um, I went missing for 36 hours. Um, and it, and so I was in Cincinnati. I was supposed to be back at like seven o'clock on a Sunday night. I didn't show up until 7 a.m. on a Tuesday morning because of a woman. <laughs> and, you know, and so I, like my life could have been destroyed because of that. Absolutely destroyed. But I had Major Ridgeway, who was my headquarters and headquarters squadron commander at the time. And, uh, and I received what's called non-judicial punishment. Um, I was restricted to the barracks for 30 days. And, uh, but I still ended up, you know, a couple of years later, I was promoted to NCO. I became a corporal. So it didn't completely curb my career. And I could have re-enlisted. I don't know if I would have been able to stay in for a full 20 with that on my record, but I definitely would have been able to enlist four years for another four years. <clears throat> um, but I, I, you know, I got out because it was just, it's a military is a hard life. And, it, and the people that do do it for 20 something years are, I'm impressed, especially, you know, in the Navy and the Marine Corps, uh, just because of the amount of deployments that you do, you know, you are constantly overseas. That's their mission is to be gone. Uh, you know, so, so I did that, got my college money, got out, went to college. Yeah. And you were a math major in college? I, I studied math. I wasn't a math major. I, my degrees in, in, um, history, I studied the ancient, right. ancient Near East, uh, ancient astronaut theorists contend. No. You're not one of the ancient alien guys? No. Oh. No, no, no. Okay, uh, I got that wrong. No, that's not me. There has to be evidence for something in order but for me to look But math goes into it. that. Like, how yeah. could they construct the pyramids? Oh, absolutely. But, right? but it doesn't, just math. because you can't answer that question, aliens is not the, you don't go to, you don't go to the god of the gaps. All right. You know, All just right. because you don't know the answer, therefore right, it's got to be the superpower. We can agree on that. Yeah. We'll get to some stuff we disagree on. Oh, I'm Keep sure. Going. So, I'm so sure. what do you what do you learn in college that's not in your fucking school book? Um, I, college, especially with history, is for me it was learning how to learn, how to do research, how to find evidence. Uh, and so, it's not necessarily about being lectured to. That wasn't my experience. I, I'm sure that's a, a lot of students' experience of the teacher tells you what you're supposed to think and and write. Uh, but I went to Sonoma State University. My, one of my professors' uh, history was an archaeological PhD, archaeology. And so he wasn't a historian. You know, he dug in the dirt. And if you don't find the evidence in the dirt, therefore, whatever theory or, is out there, or idea, not theory, whatever idea is out there, if there's not evidence, then it's 
don't bother looking at it. You know, it's, it's a wasted point. Um, so it was about learning how to learn and how to critical thought and not just accepting what you've been told, but to, to evaluate that information. So, yeah, I loved it. Granted, a history degree is really just a degree in reading and writing. You know, it's, you could go to the library and learn everything that I learned, um, for $2.75 in late fees. Right. In that's right. Charges. Will hunting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, and, and, and that's true, but you also, there's some mentoring that takes place in college, uh, you know, where the professor can say, well, you know, yeah. don't, don't just, you know, look at primary sources and not just somebody's opinion of that primary source. I got a question. How many, how much of what you learned in college did you feel like after later on, like you listen to something like hardcore history or mm-hmm. yeah. history Love on Daniel fire with Daniel Lecluelli. Yeah. Like we are like, fuck, I was fucking lied to. I mean, think about what I was 19 years old. Let me paint the picture. I'm 19 years old. It's Columbus day. I'm in junior college and there's a shit ton of native Americans in headdresses right. in our fucking, in our meeting hall. And I'm like, Oh, this, this looks cool. Let me sit down here. And I go over there and they talk in very real terms about what Columbus was doing when he was here. And then, but that's not your reality. So for you, you're like, well, that's, no, that's not, no, Columbus was awesome. He gave us freedom. He invented (laughs) democracy, you know, this kind of stuff. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's just bananas to have that turned upside down. And I think um, Jucka Willink does a great job of this Mm -hmm. in uh, his podcast, The Raping of Nan King, where he goes through that book. And it's, fucking gut-wrenching right like it's it's a and he he will preface before the episode i encourage we'll link to it in the show notes um he prefaces before the episode like this is not one you listen to with your kids this right. is not one you throw on during dinner it's some of the most horrific acts in yeah. human history and it's very well documented and detailed right but what he elaborates on is how culturally the japanese were taught a very certain thing about their enemies about mm-hmm. the chinese from birth Mm-hmm. on through every school, through every grade in school that they had all the way up until they got to the military. So by the time they get there, they're not looking at those other humans as humans. Not at all. They are not fucking right. human to them, right? So like, how can this happen? Well, this is how it can happen. Right. Right. And culturally too, every nation does this. You know, so there are horrors that have taken place in um, the American past. Right. And so we all know the story of, of giving Native Americans um, blankets that were infected with smallpox. Right. But if you ask who is the president that was in charge of that decision, most of us, we would have to be like, well, who, let me work that timeline. You don't get taught who committed the horror. You get taught that the horror happened, but it really wasn't what we wanted. And, and so you, we don't tend to identify who our monsters are in our past or the decisions that were made. And monster might not be a fair term. Some people could hear that and think like, no, that person wasn't a monster. Just culturally at the time, it, you know, people view Native Americans as less than human. So therefore, you can't blame them for the choices that they did. So we don't, we don't get taught that. That's similar. Uh, sorry to cut you off. Finish this and then I'll jump in. Okay. So um, we... Every, every culture does this. Uh, the predominance of death camps were not in Germany. They were in Poland, right? So there's an aspect of the German culture that if you were to talk to them about 
World War II and the Jews and the Holocaust, that there's this pretty big consensus. Um, and there's a book by Ernestine Schlantz um, that was written, I don't know how many years ago. Um, Can you say his name in a German accent? Uh, no, no. <laughs> it's a woman. And she was married to okay. um, uh, former Senator Bill Bradley. Uh, and she wrote about this and that, you know, the culture was, we committed these... We didn't commit these atrocities. What we did wrong is we kicked the Jews out of the country. And then the Polish were the ones that really enacted this terror. But then if you confront you know, people with, yeah, but the SS were running the camps. Well, the SS were a presence in the camp, but the camps were really controlled by the Polish. And so you, know, you have this German culture. And for the rest of the world, we all know what Germans did to the Jews during the Holocaust. But their national consensus, and it's, Definitely, you know, it's not unanimous, but there's population that thinks like, no, our mistake was we kicked the Jews out and it was the Poles that did this, Hmm. you know, which is for us, it's mind-blowing. You would think like, no, you did this. You guys were the horrific ones. It wasn't. That's just reminding me of a couple of things. Obviously, there's a huge parallel to a lot of this stuff with slavery. And, uh, you know, that's also like, like they're just like the thought of that, well, Native Americans weren't thought of as human or they were mm-hmm. thought of less than. So that was kind of the common consensus. So you have to give some leeway there. Like, no, you don't. Um, you know, when we talk about our founding forefathers and what great thinkers they were, they were all yeah. slave owners, right. right? It took generations to pass before we had that shift, right? right? And, uh, you know, to allude to what you're talking about here, I don't know. I think it was, um, I think it was, Chelsea Handler, who I haven't watched much of, but you know, I got her baked on one of her shows. Mm-hmm. So I watched a few episodes of her things. And I think she was touring the South and asking different people what they thought of slavery. And there was people answering on camera, maybe this was like 2016. So only a couple of years ago. Well, I don't think it's that bad. I think there was probably some good. Right. I think the majority were good slave owners that were pretty nice to them and would, right. you know, cook food for them. And then I think, you know, there was probably a few bad apples that made the rest look bad. And it's like, damn, right. <laughs> this is fucking 2016. But I think there might be something to that in that most people, and this is this is a segue to get into Jordan Peterson, but most people, they they can't look at themselves or, or their, whatever they come from with any real integrity, if it's too painful or if it's too much, if it causes guilt or shame, then we, we don't want to look at that. We don't want to acknowledge that. And this is a concept that Aubrey's talked about, um, in his open relationship. If he holds himself to the standard that he holds himself at, and he's feeling jealousy, there's shame and guilt around that jealousy. So he won't even acknowledge the fact that he's actually feeling jealous. And thankfully, there's mm-hmm. tools like psychedelics and, and deep inner work and introspection that allow him to process and see that thing for what it is. But across the board, whether it's Germany or whether it's parts of the South, mm-hmm. you see that, you know, and, and I'm sure there's, you know, towns near Native American land still to this day where they're like, no, you know, we gave them this plot of land. They're right. doing great. They, should, they got a casino. It's their fault. They're not happy, yep. you know, and not realizing that you, they've been disenfranchised for three, 400, 500 years, um, that how they're, they're not encouraged to participate in democracy. You know, there are all these ways that they get left out. Yeah. So there is a concept that Jordan Peterson has that, I mean, there's a couple that I agree with and don't get me wrong. I read that, that article you sent me and actually Ryan, I'm going to have an article sent to you 
from Kurt. So we can link to that in the show notes for people to get a slightly different view on Jordan Peterson. Most people that listen to the show, he was on guest on Aubrey's. Uh, we have a lot of people that listen to the show that listen to um, Joe Rogan. And for a while I was, I was drinking the Kool-Aid, you mm-hmm. know, but there are some things that stood out to me, particularly in his book and in, and in listening to his lectures where I'm like, oh, okay. And the article really rang true for me. He uses a lot of different language and tries to connect a lot of dots. And it's very hard to disprove because he's tackling so many different concepts from yeah. many different walks of life. Um, but what he said that resonated with me was, it was very clear. When people say, how could the Nazis do that? To recognize very clearly, that's you. Mm-hmm. You could fucking do that. Easily. Every human on Easily. this planet has the exact same hardware. Not the same software, but the exact same hardware. This isn't millions of years ago. Right. This isn't Homo erectus or some fucking descendant of, of Homo sapiens. This is this is within 100 years. Right. They are the exact same hardware as us. Right. So how could they do that? No, we're all fucking capable of that horrific thing. So really to have an examination of what we're taught, is it valuable? Does it Mm -hmm. serve? Is it for the good of all? Like to really have that introspective look at not only, you know, as Don Miguel Ruiz talks about in the four agreements, like what have we been domesticated to? What are the things we agreed to? Like we all stop on red, we all go green, we all go go on green, right? Mm -hmm. Those are all agreements. But what else is packaged into that? You know, I think that's, that's a key a key piece here. And I agree with Jordan Peterson on that. Yeah. So uh, for those that I've, I've been critical of some of Jordan's thoughts from time to time, not all of them. And I would never, ever say anything disparaging about him on air. Bash him. Uh, ba- no, because he's, he, I'm not, I don't have the opportunity to discuss an idea with him. So if I hear him say something and I disagree with it, if we were in a room together, I could say, well, hold on. So I'm not, I'm not sure how you got from A to B. Can you walk me through this process? And then I might get a better understanding. This is where you'll like the article. So please read along if you're if you're curious about this. Right yeah. Now. And so unfortunately, you know, so Jordan Peterson, and I know he's caused celeb for people to, to bash. You know, people want to get their names known by being the ones that are counter Jordan Peterson. But it's not fair to do that if you're not in a discussion with him. And, and he's definitely been the subject of, like gotcha journalism, you know, where people try and pin him down on something that he said. And I, I, I've read enough Jordan Peterson and watched enough that he would probably be willing to say, and I'm putting these words in his mouth, that he's not 100% correct all the time. He said that before. Yeah. yeah. And so, and for me, the problem, whether it's, um, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Jordan Peterson fan or a Joe Rogan fan or an Aubrey fan or anything else is that you cannot be part of a base. You cannot have zero issue with anything, everyone, with anything that someone says. There has to be things that you're like, well, I don't agree with that. I agree with this, but I don't agree with that. Um, and the base is really the problem. The base is, will always be the problem. As you know, example, and I, I just wrote an article about this for uh, Mediaite, uh, it's a uh, Dan Abrams website, news website, where discussing how much a base can screw up what we do. Um, so there's no historian, no journalist today that would argue that what Nixon did as far as Watergate, 
the Saturday Night Massacre was okay. Everybody's in contention that this was a mistake. Nixon did some incredible things as a president. He really did. He did a couple just phenomenal. Open up trade with China, uh, Title IX, um, you know, for uh, women's sports, female sports. There's a lot of people that don't like Title IX. There's a lot of people that do, but I don't, I don't care. Like, I want, I want women to come to the table. You know, and Title IX attempted to accomplish that. And where it failed is, yeah, but our our men's baseball team could have been so much better had we not had to subvert that $15,000 to support the women's volleyball. No, I no, you're, you'll never hear me uh, accept that what a man didn't get, you know, is, is a tragedy compared to what, you know, a woman should get. So in any case, when Nixon's last year in office, his approval rating, not his disapproval, his approval rating was in the 20%. 20% of the nation was completely okay with what Nixon had done. There is no historian that'll tell you that that's okay, what he did. And it, I think if we polled people today, they would be like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's a problem. Um, and so that number really should have been in the single digits, yet it wasn't. It was still in the 20%. There were people that were like, well, Nixon's my guy. So there had to have been a justification for him doing what he did, and they didn't care that it was illegal. And we see this with every single president. People will always, um, you know, when Reagan apologized for the Iran-Contra affair, like, uh, in my heart, you know, I still believe this to be true. You know, he gives this <laughs> national interview that I did not know what was happening. People accepted that. It's hard to imagine that a president did not know that that was taking place. And it doesn't matter if it's Clinton, Obama, Trump, you know, W. Bush, H.W. Bush. We make excuses for our our politicians. We make excuses for our intellectual thinkers. You know, there are people out there that have never heard anything that that Peterson said, Jordan Peterson said, as being incorrect. Mm. Well, if Peterson's one of the first people to admit, you know, like, I'm not right all of the time. Um, and Peterson does do a great job encouraging people to go out there and read and look at stuff. He's not telling you he has you know, the secret source that you don't get exposure to, like some cults. He he encourages this, uh, yet you still have a base that's like, nope, he's perfect. He's he's 100% correct. And, and I, I think that's, man, that's sad because all of us, you know, you have intellect, you have the ability to think, you have the ability to process. And if you're just willing to accept what somebody says without verifying or without doing your own exploration, then you're not really serving much. You know, you're not providing a, a a thought to the conversation. Yeah. What do you think of, uh, this will probably be the last of Jordan Peterson, but there's a concept here that trickles into other concepts. So I want to, I want to bring this up. What do you think of his main thought process that life is chaos and order? So that's, that's an, that's a really interesting one. Um, cause if you talk about chaos and order, uh, if we look at it in terms of, um, physics. So if I look at the sun right now, I would say that the sun is, is order. It's not chaotic. You know, it's nuclear fission. It's providing this radiation allows the earth to exist. But those are values that I have identified, right? I, I, or I have assigned a value. Um, prior to the sun existing, uh, it, it was forming. Well, how, why isn't that order? You know, and so when the sun explodes, that's not chaos. That's just the next process. 
it's not beautiful. It's not ugly. It's not order. It's not chaos. It is entropy. It is change. But there is no order or chaos. It's just doing what nature says to do. If an uh, tornado hits Iowa, and I don't want that to happen, and lives are lost, we have a negative assignment to it. But the earth doesn't care. That's just the, that tornado has to exist because of the natural laws of earth, airflow, heat, humidity, you know, all these things taken together create tornadoes, create hurricanes. If they're destructive, that's bad. We don't like it. Um, but it's just a natural part of things. And so there isn't an order and a chaos. Um, Peterson's is more about, you know, your life um, and not necessarily about, you know, the- The laws of the universe. Right. The, yeah. And I would agree with that. I think that that parallels, I think in his book, 12 Rules for Life, he gets a little too far into the Bible that I'm familiar with. Right. But um, heaven and hell, I do think of as constructs of our lives right now and manifest. So what we go through here on earth is, you know, our perception directly places us in one or the other. Mm-hmm. Life is good or it's bad. And for people who look through the filter of, life is chaotic and life always has me down and I have bad luck and you fill in the blank. I think we, there is a bit of that self-fulfilling prophecy and anyone you've met who is an Eeyore or a downer mm-hmm. who can't seem to get their shit together, they will constantly find ways to affirm that very belief. Right. And the same is true on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? You can, you can have somebody who really nothing gets them down because they have a good head on their shoulders and they have a way of reframing and rethinking whatever the thing is, right? Um, so with that, and then of course, even in Buddhism, like we are, we are, their teaching is about the end of suffering. Mm-hmm. Like we are born into suffering and this is the human life condition. Is suffering. Life is suffering. And we, we have that as the human condition, but there is a way out. If you we try to mitigate steps. the suffering of others, yep. you know, don't. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I just don't know if how much energy should be lost in assigning a value to that. You know, if. Um, if I need to change an aspect of my life, I don't think it benefits me to say like, well, my life is chaotic right now. Yeah. The labeling of shit doesn't make a damn bit of difference. You know, and, and there, I don't think that you can have an ordered life. I think that you can be on a path to improve your life, to always trying to attempt to improve your life, but it's not, there are things that you could do to make it chaotic, whether you are living in drama um, drug issues, family issues, stuff like that, that there's bad, things, bad drug issues, bad That's drug cool. issues, bad, you you're right. You know, opioids are, or, you know, when you're taking them and it, and it's not needed to mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, but it's for most of us who don't have destructive lives or, um, I, I don't see a benefit to labeling it as that, as opposed to, I just need to improve. You know, I, I need to be on a better path and, and it's not about order or chaos. It's, just about having a way. Very well stated, my brother. Let's drop into politics here. Never been discussed on the show before. Right. Um, what strikes me, and you live in Portland, and there's, you know, that's kind of, if anyone's seen Portlandia, which is a mockery it's of It's 100% correct. It is awesome. <laughs> it's really it's fucking a, accurate. They nailed right? it. They did nail it. Yeah. And um, so so culturally there, I can see kind of, kind of, some reasons that's a very left place, mm-hmm. right? But having a military background, coming from military 
um, descendants, a long line of people that have been in there. How have how, that's typically more conservative, more right wing? Mm-hmm. How have have your politics been shaped over the course of your life? What has what has really brought you to where you're at today, and what are those values? So I think a lot of it, you know, falls back to the history. Okay, I believe this, but why do I believe that? Let me look into it. There's been numerous times that I've written articles, whether it was politics or MMA based, where I had this idea of the path of research that I wanted to be on. And then you're presented with evidence that's to the contrary. Oh no, by the stats, Dominic Cruz should beat TJ Dillashaw, even though you initially, you have that gut feeling TJ should win that, that fight. But once you break it down, like who do you, odds are favorite. Oh, it ends up being that Dominic should be the one that wins that as an, as an, as an example. Um, and so with politics, I think and we're moving into the holiday season and, you know, you always see these things on social media or, or news reports that, oh, it's the holiday season. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about politics, right? Because these are the things that disrupt families. Why? You know, it's not, it's not what you're talking about. It's how you're talking to each other. Uh, and so my path on politics has never been about, I need to tell you why you should be thinking something different. It's not that at all. It's, I try and look at, um, you know, research-based positions and therefore why I have this view that I do and not dictating that you need to have the same view um, and want it to be a conversation. So if it's the holidays and, you know, I've got far-right family members, I've got far-left family members, and then trying to figure out, like, how can we communicate about these issues where you're feeling heard and that I'm feeling heard? So if I go into it thinking like, oh, I really need to explain to my sister why it's okay to own a gun, she might not be willing to hear that. But if I listen to why she doesn't want, and this is not, I don't believe this is thought that she has, but if she thinks that we need to get rid of all guns, um, I, need to, I need to listen to that position first before I even attempt to establish my position. Before you tell her that America's not an island and we can't get rid of all the guns and this is not Australia. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's really one of the most silly arguments that that people on the far left. And unfortunately, the further you are to the left, the further you are to the right, those are the smallest amount of people that for some reason have the largest voice. Well, that's what social media is. Right? Yeah, it does. It and it, it allows people to just put out misinformation constantly. And so for those that didn't hear that, you know, Australia was able to banned guns after a pretty horrific massacre um, a couple decades ago. But culturally, we are not Australia. I mean, look at the United States alone. The, the different cultures that you have that exist in the Pacific Northwest versus Louisiana, versus Connecticut, versus even New Mexico. We are a vast culture of people. And so could you imagine, let's say the Senate is 100% uh, Democrats, the House is 100% Democrats. Every governorship, every state legislature is 100% Democrats, with the exception of Texas. Let's say Texas keeps a Republican governor, a Republican legislature. Can you imagine if the United States tried to say, like, we're going to get rid of guns? Texas would say, and Fuck I think you. rightfully <laughs> so, well, we're not going to stay in this because culturally, we're not okay with that. This is part of how we identify you're not going to take that from us, and we would rather cede from the union than be part of this. Um, and and I think that that's an appropriate response, you know. So you can't 
you can't just tell people, like, you have to do this. And so culturally, what they did in Australia could never happen in the United States. It really could not happen in the United States. Certain states could certainly do that. Um, you know, California has made it extremely difficult to buy uh, certain types of firearms where other states don't. Like in Oregon, um, you know, it's it's a very much, there's paramilitary idea. And so uh, AR-15s, stuff like this is a big part of the culture, uh, which, you know, just something that happens. So with politics, you know, it's it's no different. If, you know, we want to discuss, you know, Trump or Obama or anything like that, I need to make sure that I don't do, well, what about? You know, if I point out the hypocrisy that somebody is exhibiting, that's not going to get them to hear what it is that I have to say. You know, that's just an absolute waste. Um, and I also think that, unfortunately, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say a lot, but there's a good deal of amount of people that aren't as informed as they should be because they look at strictly biased information, whether it's coming from the left or from the right. They, they're looking for validation. And oftentimes that validation is coming through um, a passionate, well-constructed argument, but not presented with evidence. You know, that it's there's conjecture in the argument. There's um, possibilities that they're presenting, but they're not saying like, this has happened. They're just saying, well, what if, you know, we saw it like, you know, with the whole border wall, you know, with the, uh, migrants coming over and, and president Trump saying that, you know, we can, uh, you know, consider those rocks the same as a rifle and that, you know, just fed to, you know, the separation between two aspects of America and, and, although I would argue neither side really understands the ramifications of that statement, uh, the president can establish rules of engagement. It really doesn't come from him. Um, it comes from commanders and it comes from a book called the San Remo Handbook on Rules of Engagement that was created by the United Nations. You can't just shoot at people because you want to, you know, and so... Um, <laughs> And so, you know, the left gets all up in arms, the right, you know, says, no, that should be able to happen. And it's just, you know, not necessarily the case, but it's because they don't have that access to, not that they don't have the access to information, but they don't want to look to that information to um, see if they should be viewing it um, in a different way. So what are some core things, some core beliefs that you're down with that differ, that one might be on the right, one might be on the left, that make you more centered? Because I think so, most intelligent people are going to be somewhere closer to the middle yeah, than, and, than these extremes, left so and right. My, my biggest problem always, always is when somebody tells me that m one of the biggest threat facing America is another American. Like, I can't stomach it when a conservative tells me that America's problems are liberals. I can't stomach it when a liberal tells me America's problems are conservatives. Because um, it's just not, it's not true. And, uh, you know, for the most part, a lot of us believe in like this sense of tribalism, but the political tribalism that's taking place is extremely detrimental. Uh, as an example, if you tell me your position on abortion, I now know where you stand on man-made climate change, I know where you stand on Black Lives Matter. I know where you stand on uh, a vast number of issues that are completely unrelated to each other on, on the Second Amendment. You know, none of these things have anything to do with each other. And so, and that's really unfortunate. 
everything should be able to stand alone and not have you be a hundred percent on board because that tends to be the position of your side. Yeah, I'm red or blue, and that checks off all right. the fucking boxes for me. And that's out just of the gate. oh gosh, that's that's detrimental. That's so detrimental. You know that there is no correlation between man-made climate change and the Second Amendment. There's not. You know, so you should be able to look at one. Um, and have it stand alone compared to these other things. I have a great story to jump in with uh, that it's very quick. Donald Cerrone was in town and he was here at On It. And, you know, we just got a nice big lifted Tundra, which I'm sure he would have approved of. But at the time I was driving my Prius, which (laughs) (laughs) sticks out like a sore thumb here in Texas, right? And he sees me get into it and he just looks over and he shakes his head and he goes, what are you, a fucking liberal? Mm-hmm. And I laughed so hard. And I was right. like, why? Because I fucking like the environment or because I want to save on gas. Right. What kind of shit is that? You know, <laughs> like it was just, it was hilarious. But like, that's the thing. Like if you care about the environment, right. if you think we're, we have a hand in this, right? Then automatically you're a progressive far left piece right. of shit who doesn't want anyone to own their guns and fill in the blank on all that other stuff. Baby killer, you mm-hmm. name it, right? Which is so ironic because the whole start of conservatism with Teddy Roosevelt was conserving the environment. You know, he enacted these national parks, um, you know, wanted to protect hunting grounds and waterways. So that way we could fish, we could be stewards of the land. And then it got a way of, no, we should get oil or uh, let's, uh, one of the first things that Reagan did when he came into office was took solar panels off the roof of the White House that Jimmy Carter had put up you know, because wanting to establish, you know, America's righteousness with uh, having fossil fuels, you know, which is odd. It's very odd, you know. And so, it, yeah, it, it's that weird, weird juxtaposition of these ideas that yeah, they just don't fit. Saudi Arabia, as an example, you know, largest oil producers in the world are spending $200 billion on a solar farm. That's everything you need to know about the future of oil. If Saudi Arabia is willing to spend $200 billion on a solar farm, we should reevaluate. You know, and, and without a doubt, the reality is in 100 years from now, hopefully less, 100% of the vehicles on the road are going to be electric powered or- You think in 100 years? My guess would, well, I mean, it's just- a I don't think so. I don't, I don't think we're running out of oil anytime soon. It's not that we're the, running out of the oil. The powers that be. I'm not saying that we're running out so, of oil. So, well, let's get into this too, because I, I'm not a, there is no doubt the climate is changing. Mm-hmm. I think everyone will agree to that. Nope. No matter what everyone won't. <laughs> everyone Well, won't. everyone whose opinion I value will agree the climate is changing. Okay. We may differ on how much of a hand we have in that. Right. Or how much oil has a hand in that. And I've read books like uh, The Soil Will Save Us that talks about ways we can sequester carbon through grass-fed cattle, grazing mm-hmm. cattle versus, you know, factory farm meat. And factory farm meat, because of the methane being a far higher cont- contributor than fossil fuels or third world countries that burn cow patties to stay warm, mm-hmm. right? There's an energy crisis in India and the vast majority of people that live there need to heat their little huts, right? right? We saw that in Afghanistan. Yep. Um, so is methane more than the carbon footprint that we leave? I don't fucking know, right? Mm-hmm. But are we? do we have a hand in this? I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, with that, with you watch like the, what's the documentary with Leonardo DiCaprio? Can you pull that up, Ryan? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's, you know, he's a Hollywood guy. He's pretty far left. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 it had an air of um, Al Gore's film, 
mm-hmm. Inconvenient Truth. It had a lot of that in it. Before the flood. Thank you, Giles. But what it talked about was, you know, and they show like the prime minister of these tiny countries in uh, Malaysia where their their islands are being swallowed up by the water already. And they're basically stating that if they're if the scientists that are proposing this are correct, in a, in an 80-year span, we'll lose all of our coastal cities. Mm-hmm. And so refugees, even within our own country and every other major country, will become a huge issue. Hong Kong is gone, Miami, Manhattan. You know, so if if those are accurate, then I could see us switching from like, all right, no more fucking oil unless it's absolutely necessary. We're going to have all electric cars, those kind of things. If the estimate is off, even by a little, I see the powers that be holding on as much as possible mm-hmm. to fucking oil. Yeah. Well, oil generates a profit, you know, clean energy, however you want to define it, whether it's, you know, wind, nuclear, um, uh, solar, doesn't, it's not a, it's not a profit driven industry. So people aren't making trillions of dollars. Uh, like, I don't think that you would ever get a nation that has as many billionaires as Saudi Arabia does based off of solar energy or wind energy or nuclear energy. It's just not going to happen, you know, and, and I think that as time goes by, technology will allow us to harness these energy sources a lot more efficiently, which means that you don't have to have all the effort that's that's involved. So like when people are calling for coal to come back, there's not a good return on the dollar in investing in coal energy. Uh, it's just not. And so companies, why would I invest a dollar on that only to make $2 when I can invest a dollar in oil and make $5, something like that. So that's why coal is going away. It just doesn't make money. Now, eventually, um, although I guess, even though I said, um, you know, these clean energies are not uh, uh, profit-driven industries, eventually there'll be the shift to it because of the fact that there's enough damage to the earth that from possibly from oil, that we need something, that we can have all the energy that we want and people aren't having to waste money on it. So it wouldn't be driven from money made, but from money citizens are able to save and therefore spend on something else. Mm. Uh, you know, So for a capitalist market, you kind of do want people spending money on something other than heat, uh, you know, food, stuff like that. When I want you to buy a TV, um, where your options are a tank of gas or a new video game, yeah, let's figure out a way to get rid of the tank of gas as an issue so that way you can buy the new video game. I think that'll that'll eventually... You familiar with uh, Milton Friedman? Oh, yeah. Yeah, fucking yeah. excellent dude. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll find a video that we can put up uh, in the show notes. He's an, he's an old school guy. Um, has He's a brilliant mind on oh, what a truly yeah. free and open market looks mm-hmm. like and how a lot of the pitfalls of capitalism are addressed through a free and open market. And, and I, that resonance that just, that just came up for me because I think that's a, one of the fairer arguments from conservatives who want everything to be oil driven and don't give a shit about, you know, having the biggest truck on the planet, um, is let the open market decide. Right. Right. And so let's, true let's let technology, yeah. let's let technology be the, the mover on this and really redirect. And I don't think, I mean, you can love fast cars, but the second you get in a fucking Tesla, you're like, good God, this, right. is, this is the fucking dopest yeah. futuristic car I've ever fucking been yeah. in, you know, and it's lightning fast. Mm-hmm. 
You know, so I think that that those are clear indicators that we are heading in that direction. Oh yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. So one thing we haven't discussed, which is kind of going off topic compared to where we've been, is jujitsu. Yeah. And I and I definitely want to get this in towards the end here. And, and that you're you're like 57 right now? Yeah, I'll be 58 uh next September. No, you're not. No. 47. 47. Yeah. That was good. I only give you 10 year, an extra 10 years there. Um when did you get into jujitsu? And what have I mean, what how's your the fucking course of your career gone? Because you're dealing with injuries and shit like that. You still train. You're inspiring me because I'm 37. And I've got a fucked up knee mm-hmm. that happened in jujitsu. Yep. And anytime as a dad, as a father of three, and I'm a father of one who wants more kids, anytime you can't walk yeah. or you can't fucking move and play like a normal human, that I am coming to a crossroads where I'm not sure if I want to press on down that road. But right. you're doing it right now. So let's let's talk about that. So there's always that idea of, you know, training smart. You know, we all know that train smart versus train hard. I've definitely noticed as I've gotten older. So there's, for us, there's always been strength training and conditioning training. And now I'm realizing that I have to incorporate training completely designed to prevent injury, you know, which is outside the, the norm of uh, physical activity. So if you've got 45 minutes on a Monday and you're like, well, I can go, I can go hit, you know, some squats. I can blast out the legs. Great you now have stronger legs. But at my age, it's about, well, I've got 45 minutes. Let me make sure I'm doing the exercises that will prevent me from being injured whenever I'm doing explosive behavior. Um, you know, and, and I need that in jujitsu. I just recently had my first knee surgery about five weeks ago uh, out of a 47-year life of physical activity. You know, I started boxing when I was a kid. I lived in Thailand and fought Muay Thai over there. Um, and then I transitioned into jujitsu because of like, I'm tired of being punched and kicked. Like the gentle art. Like it, it, I mean, it's, it's rough, but a bad day in jujitsu means that I get tapped and, you know, and then you reset, you shake hands and you start all over again. Bad day in, you know, MMA or Muay Thai, kickboxing, boxing is you're going to get punched in the face for, you know, five to 10 rounds and that. And so if you have a bad day where you're just timings off, you're just getting, your life shortened by continuing for that hour. And your quality of life. And your quality of life. Even if you live to 100, nobody wants to be a vegetable for the last 40 years. Right, yeah. Know? Don't want that at all. So I got into jujitsu when I was 30. I started training with, uh, in, with David Terrell in Santa Rosa, California. That's a good first coach. Oh my gosh, what a monster. What an absolute, and he still is. Um, his jujitsu career at the time uh, he, he'd never even been scored on in a competition all the way through. He did an appearance at uh, Abu Dhabi Combat uh, ADCC back in, I want to say 2001, somewhere right around there, where like he lost in the semifinals to Salo Hibero. Um, and I think it was by an advantage or uh, ref's decision. Uh, he, he, Dave will be the first to tell you that, yeah, but prior to that, Salo did you know, suplex them, you know, twice prior to points being able to be scored. But, and in fact, there's this, you know, you can watch a highlight video of him competing at that tournament. So he was just always a monster. Um, and that was a very mat tough school. Like you couldn't, 
you, it was not the gentle art. It was, it was pretty rough. You had a young Nick Diaz in the house too, right? Oh my, I can tell you like at the, at a Gracie open. So it was a local San Francisco tournament. Um, that the very first one that I went to at one point, there was like eight matches going and at everybody in the crowd got up and moved to one quarter of the gym. And so I was asking like, what's going on? And they were like, Nick Diaz is over there. He was a blue belt at the time, I think like 16 or 17 years old. And the entire place wanted to go watch him compete. And of course he dominated, you know, the kid's a monster. I think when he was 19 um, is when he just started tapping, like, you know, these upper black belts in competition without much problem. And these guys both came out of, Dave Terrell and Nick Gracie came, uh, Nick Diaz came out of Caesar Gracie school. Caesar is just one of the best. Um, one of the interesting aspects of it, I think is, you know, your ego, um, you know, with jujitsu, we always say, Hey, check your ego at the door and your ego is not your amigo and all these little <laughs> silly phrases, which I kind of disagree with now that I'm a little bit older. I think that your ego, your ego is not a positive or a negative. It's definitely a yin and a yang. It's both that you need your ego to improve. Um, and it doesn't matter what it is. If I want to be a better husband and a better father, that's my ego saying, hey, correct this. Um, if I want to get better at jujitsu, that's my ego. And my idea isn't I want to be better than other people. It's that I want to be better than I was. That is still your ego. And I can remember Dave asking me <laughs> after training for like a year, he goes, don't you ever get tired of getting tapped out? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, nope. Yeah, it was because I was. I was getting tapped out by everybody. And, you know, I've got these long arms. And so, like, if you're new to jujitsu, if you train for four weeks, you're going to be able to arm bar me just because, you know, I'm this lumbering buffoon. And uh, and so Dave said that to me. And I was like, oh, yeah, I kind of, yeah, I don't, I don't want to get tapped out anymore. And so then, you know, I was trying to work harder to, have a smarter game. And, and that that's the ego, but that ego allowed me to improve, you know, and not to be destructive towards somebody else, but to get better, you know, at the sport that I love. And yeah, so it's, it's a good path. That resonates a lot with me because so much in the, you know, in, as a, there's been not the majority of these episodes on this podcast, but there's been a few where we've dipped into the spiritual conversation through plant medicines and meditation and, and thoughts on God and whatever you want to call it. Um, but there, you know, it's, it's, and I, I don't mind shying, like, I'm not trying to shy away from that stuff, even though that like politics is hard for people to grasp sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, that there's no conversation that's off limits in my boat. But at the same time, in that among people in that community who are oftentimes focused like you know fucking spiritual as fuck like right. JP Sears says you know and that's that's their that's their thing there's a huge concept that i think is misaligned and that is the dissolving of the ego right right like i need to get rid of this thing well first of all it's impossible in human form maybe right. where we go after this that that gets removed but while we're here on earth absolutely impossible to fully remove that you can dissolve your ego in a plant medicine ceremony temporarily, mm -hmm. which can be a huge benefit. You can drop into a super deep meditation and come to a place of stillness where you're, you're no longer a prisoner of your thoughts. Also important, whether you ever do plant medicines or not, no matter if you're an atheist or a believer or not, doesn't matter. Those are great practices to have. But all that to say, you're never going to fucking remove your ego. No. And there's many things that if you have, a, there's, you know, there's, it's, it's a scale, right? So 
just like the far left and the far right. Right. Too little ego. You're probably a pushover and a little bitch that doesn't, you know, like doesn't have a backbone. Too much ego. You're probably too a little bit self-centered, narcissistic, mm-hmm. and, and you don't listen to other people or hear what other people are saying. Right. But somewhere in that me- medium, somewhere in the middle, you can find common ground and balance in what you want to gain out of life, how, you know, there, there is a spark, there is drive to be better, to do better for yourself, yeah. but there still is that ability to, to kind of let go, to surrender, to listen to others, to maybe change your mind, maybe right. admit that, oh, fuck, I was wrong there. You know? Right. One, one of my favorite ego stories is um, uh, Elliot Marshall, who's actually competing tomorrow at the uh, On It Invitational. On an uh, Invitational 10, baby. On an Invitational 10. Tune in. Live on Facebook? Yeah, but not live when this podcast airs, you would have oh, to go so back that's in right. time. So, so you guys go back in time, look it up on Facebook videos and watch <laughs> it. So I moved out to Colorado, uh, I don't know, like uh, six years ago, maybe seven. And we lived out there for a few years, then moved back to Portland. And I started training at like in a mall Easton school. A mall Easton was one of Henzo Gracie's first black belts. And uh, and then he moved to Boulder, opened up his jujitsu school. I think it was like a purple belt at the time. And Elliot Marshall was one of his first students and has been one of his consistent um, students. And, and they now own multiple locations in uh, the greater Portland area. And if you ever get a chance, Elliot's got a- uh, Greater Portland or greater- or, I'm sorry, Denver greater Denver area. area. Yeah. And Elliot's got a podcast. I think it's called The Gospel of Fire. And if you can, check it out. I mean, he's- Didn't he just do a book too? He's working on okay. it. I don't okay. think okay. it's been published yet. Okay. And so after a training session, oftentimes Elliot will relay a story- um, you know, that fits into, you know, something that we're doing. And this is one of my favorite stories of his that I try and share as often as possible. And he was like, I remember the first time I really started to smash a mall, you know, because a mall would just tap me left and right, catch me with anything that he wanted to. And then this one day, he was like, everything was clicking for me, you know, where I was passing a mall's guard, I was doing whatever I want. Uh, I'd catch them all. And then, you know, in jujitsu, if, if somebody gets submitted, then you tap hands and slap hands and start all over again. Um, and he was like, I was just dominating, dominating. And he said, about halfway through the round, I realized, oh, Amal's just practicing this new move that he doesn't have it correct. And I'm able to do stuff because Amal is trying to improve. And it wasn't because of what Elliot was doing. It was that Amal's ego he didn't care. He was like, I want to develop this new move. If Elliot passes my guard and then submits me because of it, doesn't matter. There's a move I want to add to my game. I need to practice it on Elliot because Elliot was one of the best at the academy. So be it. And I love that story. That love that, that he was more than willing to have this kid walk off the mat thinking like, I just totally dominated this black belt. You know, I'm so good. I'm tapping black belts, you know, but Amal didn't care. And for most of us black belts, like we don't like being submitted, you know, our ego comes into play in a negative way of like, oh, that purple belt caught me or that brown belt. We don't typically get very upset when we get caught by other black belts, but if you get caught by a purple belt, then, you know, you're, you know, you're, you get a hang up on it for a day or two days or something like that. Amal didn't care. Amal was willing to let this, you know, this 230 pound snot nosed kid, you know, do whatever because Amal wanted to add something to his, his lexicon of moves. And I, I love that. And the fact that Elliot was able to recognize that that was taking place. And of course, I've seen Elliot roll a whole bunch of times, um, 
and, you know, seeing that he would allow these purple belt kids to attack in positions who put himself in dangerous positions to see what those kids can do. And so I think that's, that's really essential in jujitsu that you have to be willing to expose, try something new, um, that, you know, it's kind of hard to do in other sports that, yeah. 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 So I'll, I'll leave us here. We're running out of time. I'm going to leave us here with the converse, the flip side of that. This would be that extreme side of the ego that's not beneficial. How my knee got hurt was I was rolling with a guy that was smaller than me and also not a black belt. And it's funny because from white through brown, I didn't care if I got tapped, even by a belt that was lower than me. I might think about it, like why'd that guy tap me? But it wouldn't be, it wouldn't fuck me up. Right. But as a black belt, unless I'm rolling with Robert Drysdale or Vinny Magalesh or somebody who's been a black belt much longer than I've been rolling altogether, mm-hmm. I would be like, no, this guy ain't going to fucking tap me. Right. So the smaller guy who's not a black belt gets me in an inside heel hook, but I straighten my leg and there's no pain. So I'm like, fuck it. I'm not tapping to this. I'm going to fucking work my way out. And sure enough, no pain. I ended up tapping because I wasn't getting out, but it was a long time. I was in that position. I go on to roll. I finish the day. That night, knee swells up like a pufferfish, can't yeah. walk, torn meniscus, and badly torn. So there is, at any level, you have to be able to check that. And it's not about dissolving it completely, because that is the very thing that made me want to get on the mat in the first place. But where's the balance? Right. Right? And that's a fucking nine-month injury and counting. Right. You know, you know that you got to pay for it because you weren't willing to, huh, this is a bad position. I should... but. Had it been a Kimura, you probably would have tapped because you know because that's you know that's going to be serious damage soon. And yeah, 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 yeah. Tricky deal. It is. Where can people find you online? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, Instagram is really just pictures of my kids, pictures of you know tacos, stuff like that. Nothing super important. And then I I never tweet. I'm never on Facebook. That's a whole. That's a hole that people shouldn't be in. It's just, it, yeah, it's not. I mean, when I remember when I first got off Facebook and you were so disappointed, you're like, I, was, I miss yeah. you. That's how we would talk. Yeah. And, uh, and then you finally came over to the gram. So now we can still interact with one another. Well, I've, I've noticed that, you know, especially with something like Facebook, that even though it was designed that you could have conversations, that conversations really aren't taking place, not in ways that, you know, people can hear. It's almost become, um, one of those evil chat rooms back in the late nineties where people are, you know, just shitting on each other, Yeah, you know, libtard, this kind of stuff or conservative, you know, that there is no conversation. It's just, it's just vitriol. And so, yeah, sometimes you can, you know, you'd see something that was interesting, but I just saw way too much misinformation on there that I don't want to be in that hole. Yeah. Well, we'll get your handles and, um, what, what else were you going to talk about? You you were just on Elliot's podcast, right? Was no, I wasn't that? on Elliot's. Yeah. Which one? Elliot. Uh, Nate oh, Corey. Nate Corey. Nate Corey. So let's talk about that. Let's pump him up a little bit. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. So Nate Corey has started um, a podcast called Vet Speak. And, uh, and so the platform is where somebody from the military can just tell their story or explain what life was like in the military or anything like that. And I highly encourage people, especially if you don't have anyone in your family that has ever served in the military, you know, to listen to, to some of them. Um, there's a couple, he only started it, um, I want to say a couple of weeks ago. So I think there's maybe four or five podcasts so probably out be there. like 10-ish by the time we launch. Probably. Yeah. And just, there's just great stories. And 
So Nate wanted a platform where people can just tell. Hey, I thought That's I turned great. my Great. I love off. that you left your ringer can on. Can we edit that out? No. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck no. Um, so Sorry, people turned this podcast off a long time ago, Kurt. They won't catch that. Uh, so, so Nate started this podcast. Uh, I was on it a week ago talking about some of my experiences and what it is that I wanted people to know about the military and, uh, uh, you know, the pros, the cons. The, we'll link to that. And we'll link to the other guy who you said was better than you. There's a lot of people better than me. No, but there was one guy specifically to tune into that uh, you said was fucking on it, honestly, amazing. There's uh, Kirsten, Eddie, and Frank, and listen to any one of those podcasts, and you will I think be, it was Eddie. It was Eddie, but okay. even the Frank one is okay. compelling. And so it was the Kristen one. The Kristen one will be mind-blowing. Dope. Yeah, mind-blowing. So definitely check it out. And you know, as we're closing out, the only thing I'd want to add in relationship to that is every year we have Memorial Day. Um, and I believe 100% have a barbecue. You know, Enjoy that day off in celebration of those that lost their lives while serving for the country. But do this one thing for me. Google, research a name of somebody that died, whether Iraq war, Afghanistan, Vietnam, Korea, uh, World War II, and tell their story at your barbecue and toast them. And it won't be hard to find out, you know, just a brief history. Uh, the importance of it is, is that Family members don't want uh, anyone to be forgotten. So God forbid one of my kids grows up and dies in war, I need to know that they will live on. And um, so I started a couple of years ago looking up some names and then I would post about them online. And I got a, a Facebook message from a friend that said, oh my God, did, did you know Doc Baez? And Doc Baez was somebody that had died in, in uh, the war on terrorism. Um, and I just happened to have found his name, wrote up a quick blip about him, you know, and then cheers them online. And I said, no, I, I didn't know him. You know, I just came across his name of the unfortunate lists of thousands of people that have died for our country. Um, and then, you know, my friend responded like, I miss him every single day. And thank you for posting about him. You know, and so if you barbecue on Memorial Day, look up a name, tell, tell their story. You might feel embarrassed, but nobody at that party is going to have an issue with you doing it, you know, and, and, you know, at the last Memorial Day barbecue that we did, I had 10 names on a list that I read out that came from three people. So three friends knew 10 people that died, you know, from the war on terror and they don't want those friends forgotten, you know, and those family members don't want their children, their brothers, their sisters, their fathers and mothers forgotten. So... Yeah. It's almost like the American Dia de los Muertos. Yeah, exactly. Fuck yeah. Yeah. So make sure you put this at the front of the podcast since people turned it off a long time ago. All right. Because I don't we'll, give a shit. We'll backtrack. I guess the there is stuff. some editing necessary, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, yeah. brother. We're going to have a too. fucking Thank great you, weekend. Thank, Thank you, 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 brother. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Human Optimization Hour. We had my boy Kurt Shroud on. I hope you guys dig it. Hit us up on social media. He's uh, kind of elderly, so he might not respond quickly. But I think he's on Instagram more than anything these days, if I recall correctly. And uh, what else? 10% off all supplements and food products at onic.com slash podcast.